This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, another very special Sunday mailbag episode. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, and in particular, on this wonderful, beautiful Sunday in Sydney, Anirban Mahati. Good day, Doc. Good day, Captain. How was uh, how was your weekend so far? Oh, it's awesome. My weekend, I've been flying. Liar. <laughs> <laughs> I say that because I know in absolute truth, Doc can't be honest about that because it's not the weekend yet. We're recording this on Friday morning. But, you know, it's, it's a bit of time travel, a bit of cool, funky tech stuff that we can get to do. And the, the, the gremlins, or no, the gremlins, who are they? What do we call the little? The elves who work at the podcast things will make sure this episode goes up on the right day. Some, someone's so. going to push the little button it, in the... It's going to happen. Put the plug in the... Yeah. Is that what happens? Well, oh, put the plugs, maybe, you know, send some signatures, <laughs> put in the mail. I'm easily confused, mate. I'm easily confused. We have a absolute welter of fantastic questions, mate, from our listeners. And we're going to try and get through as many as we can. We do have a, uh, a bit, of, bit of internal, uh, bit of behind the curtain. We have to get out of the studio at a decent time. So this won't be as long as some of our others. And for some of you, that's a shame. For others of you, thinking, thank God, these bastards are getting out of my podcast feed. Either way, whichever one's right for you. That's what we're going to do. So let's get straight on it, mate. Unless you've got anything else you want to add in the meantime. No, I'm not doing any tangents. <laughs> Come on. Uh, not yet. You can't prom- okay, I was going to say uh, you can't promise that. Yeah. All right. Uh, f- first question for today, mate, is from Craig. Craig says, hi, Scott. Love the podcast, and you and Anirban are very wise. Craig, you must be listening to a different podcast is all I can say. Uh, he's, he's got a question for the podcast. He says, I own some shares in two Indian companies, Infosys and HDFC Bank. As an earbun is very wise, so I'm wise and you're very wise, and knows India well, does he have any Indian companies he thinks I should do some more research on that are listed in the US? Full on from Craig. Mate, I know literally nothing about the Indian stock market or Indian companies, so whatever you tell me now is what I'm going to learn. Are there any on your radar, any you own, any around that you've been paying attention to? So, Craig, Matt, you already own, I think, the one stock that I think people should look at, which is HDFC Bank. Okay. Um, it's, it's a quasi-government bank, I think I remember you saying once no, before. No, it's not a no? quasi. It's, it's, you know, it's, not a, it's, it's, a, it's like a housing development, it's a housing development corporation, basically. Oh, okay. It's a privately, it's one of the best-run banks, privately-run banks in uh, India, basically. I told you nothing about India yeah. banks, mate. <laughs> and, 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 you know, they sort of rode the middle class evolution where, you know, in, in the past in India, people never actually borrowed to, you know, own a house. Right. People rented all their life, saved money, and then when they retired, mm-hmm. they basically bought a house. It wasn't like, uh, okay. you know, you did not borrow to, you know, that, that concept. Oh, right. That concept was a very alien concept. Okay. Right. But, you know, as middle class sort of grew, HDFC basically, huh. you know, made this a reality. So that... Is that kind of the equivalent like the, the Fannie Mae and Freddie Macs in the US or am I drawing too long a bow? No, it's not really. I mean, that's government run, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah so fair, the, fair, those fair. are government sponsored. This okay. is not... But it's the same kind of idea, right? The idea of extending home ownership to more people via finance. Yeah, but but okay. yeah, this is privately okay, okay, r- yep. run. Like it's a private bank in that okay. sense, right? So uh, yeah, this is a very well run bank. It, it's a great stock to look at. I don't actually own it. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I'll point out is the Indian economy is in a complete funk. Right. <laughs> in a bad way. <laughs> so, um, uh, and you know, when the economy doesn't do well, banks tend to not do well. Like, India's one of those, I mean... I, India seems like it just can't get out of its own way. It's it's got a population second only to China. It's, it's got a it's got rule of law, democracy. Now there's some degree of alleged graft and corruption, but generally speaking, I mean, it, it, if if I was gonna if I was gonna try and I mean, the experience of the last ten years is a bit underwhelming. So maybe I wouldn't make the bet. But if you'd ask me just sight unseen, you told me about everything that India has. It feels like it should be the next big growth country. 
Yeah, so I think India had very good growth in, um, you know, sort of in the early 2000s. Right. Um, in, in that phase. And then sort of, you know, it needs a bunch of, I guess, you know, structural, economical, mm. structural, economic, um, economical changes. Um, and, and, you know, some of them are happening. It's probably happening at a much slower pace than it probably right. needs to happen. Will, will things improve, do you reckon, if you're a betting man? I mean, are you interested in India because... Uh, well, not because are you interested in India in the in the sense that it might become something worthwhile, or are you kind of giving it a wide berth until you see some evidence? How are you thinking about no, that? So I think there are a couple of things here. One one thing you know, one reason to be interested in India is it's got one of the largest populations of young people. Right, right. right? So that's a big asset. It's also got a large, edu- large educated base, and it's mm-hmm. also got a large education system. So those are all good things. Yeah. Um, to sort of grow an economy, right? Western rule of law, Western style. Yeah, kind and of, all those other things, yeah. you know, we've got, so, you, so I think you've got, you know, British style laws right, right. and systems. I mean, some of those things probably need uh, to be updated, <laughs> yeah, have not been true, updated so. since many of those things probably have not been updated since the 1800s. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know, those sort of things. But I think it's got got the basic foundations you would need for growth. But, okay. um, yeah, so I think it's interesting. Uh, from that point of view, I think HDFC Bank is a good proxy for that. Okay. Um, uh, just keep in mind the um, the current situation. Infosys is also good. Infosys is a pretty large company, uh, and Infosys basically is not a bet really on India in that sense, right? Inf- okay. Infosys is a bet more on outsourcing. Right. right? Yeah. Okay. Out- okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's 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 outsourced services for other multinationals. Happens to be Indian based, but could be anywhere else in theory. Yeah. Like okay. so, there are lots lots of companies that do outsourcing. Um, so that's that. There's another one that's interesting, which has which is a, which is a company called Make My Trip, which is a bit like Webjet. It's okay. basically a, an you know an online travel agent, and that has been growing pretty well. But based uh, in India for it, Indian consumers, yeah, okay. for Indian consumers. So I think that's that's an interesting company to look that's at. Make cool. My Trip. It's it's uh, ADRs are listed in the U.S. American Depository Receipts. American Depository Receipts. Again, I don't own any of them. Um, any reason? I do, should, should our listeners be investing there? Should they not? What are you thinking so about? So I, I think the way I look at investing is, you know, there's one way to invest is to say that I want to invest in a particular region because I think the region is interesting. Mm. If you want to do that, then I feel that the best way to do that is via an ETF that is more broad-based, broad yeah, okay. right? So if you think tech in India is interesting, then find an ETF that is tech-focused in India. Uh, or find, you know, the India top 50 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's a question of making specific company bets. Then if I'm making specific company bets, I basically look at the entire pool of global equities yeah. and say, well, which are the companies I want to own in that pool? And that decision is really based on, well, who has got the market opportunity, who is growing what, what's the price I'm paying, and so on and so forth. So HDFC is either one of your top 20 ideas or it's not. Or it's not. You don't start right. by saying which country yeah. do I want to invest now, in first. No, HDFC could be, right, uh, right. but, you know, it's a very high-quality company. But, you know, it's for some reason or the other, again, um, I, I just don't own it. Nice. I, yeah, but, but yeah, like, that's my lens. Um, but otherwise, I say ETFs are a good way to get access. I like that. Uh, here's my thoughts. That's it. Uh, I've got nothing to add. I, I can't help you on that one. Uh, love the insight though. Thank you, Doc. Appreciate it. My next one comes from Raw Dog on Instagram, your favorite new uh, platform. Uh, there's also a hashtag especially for you, mate. He says, hey, Scott, in brackets, and Doc. I love the podcast and I've got a question for it. And I thought I'd ask it on Instagram because of how much you love it. Would you like a picture of my smashed avocado as well? Ha ha. Hashtag get Doc on Insta. If you're out there thinking, leave, leave us a hashtag get Doc on Insta. See if we can get Doc through sheer weight of demand. He's a man of the people. He's a man who likes to make his listeners happy. Get Doc on Insta is the hashtag you want to use for that one. Anyway, he says, anyway, my question is, when does it, when, when it end, uh, sorry, when does it end and you convert your portfolio to income rather than growth? 
I'm in my early 30s and will have plenty of super once I can access it at what by then will probably be 70 years old. So I'm not so much concerned about setting myself up for then as I am trying to reach financial freedom before then. But it does beg the question, when should someone switch from focusing on growth, as I am now, to being more about income and beating inflation? Keep up the good work and full on. Good man, Rodok. Thank you for the question. Doc, he's in his 30s. Let's assume that uh, income is <laughs> a little bit away. But I love that he's thinking about it already because we ha- you know, it, it, if you're going to make changes to your financial life, you want to make them, you at least know what you're going to do in advance and then make them at the right time. So probably in his 30s, he doesn't have to think about it just yet. But at some point before retirement, he needs to start thinking about how his portfolio is going to look and feel and be structured. So tell us, how, does he, how and when does he think about going from growth to income? So I can't tell him what he's going to do. I can tell him what I do. Uh, and that will be just one small spec viewpoint uh, to consider in terms of what everybody does, right? So, you know, my way to, my way of thinking about this is suppose I'm 30 um, and I can compound my money that says 15%. That's roughly doubling every five years. I'm basically just going to continue doing that for as long as I can. Right. And the reason I wouldn't you stop that, that, mate, that's seven doubles between now, between 30 and 65. Yeah. That's a, that's a decent... Plus, you're adding more on the way through. Yeah. That's a great way to make some money. Right. So you make a lot of money in that way, if that works, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Assuming everything works, then you make a lot of money. And then, you know, you just take a little bit out of it when you need to. And, you know, let the thing still compound. And I, th- I think with that, you know, there's no need really, in my view, to change strategy. Um, so you're in the, if, if the sell capital, down. Yeah. You're, you're sell down a bit of your stock. So you've got, uh, I'll pick a number, a million dollars worth of stocks by the time you're 65. You're going to say, look, just just... Shave off a little bit. If you need fifty grand a year in, in to live, just just sell fifty grand chunks every year to fund your living expenses. Is that kind of yeah, the idea? That, that's what I would do. Okay. What about tax effectiveness, mate? So franking in Australia in particular is a big deal. That's a meaningful addition to not only not only do you avoid capital gains by not having to sell, but you're also getting that income with the franking on top. How do you kind of contextualize that for you personally? Again, we can't tell you what they individually should do. Uh, how do you contextualize that? So, you know, frankly, I don't let the tax tail <laughs> wag the investment decisions. Nice. I think that's a bad idea to think about tax and what franking does and what not. I actually do not even think about it. Right. Um, and the reason I don't think about it, you know, if, if like, if I'm taking out 50K then and whatever tax bracket it is at that point, it's yep. probably going to be low anyways. Do I really care? Probably not. If, you know, and the difference between a 10% compounding versus a 15% compound is actually pretty big, right? Yeah. One is comp- one's going to double right, right. every seven, five years, another is going to double every seven years, right? And if that thing falls from like, you know, 15 to nine, yep. that's even slower. So the money you think you're saving in tax, you may be costing yourself in investment returns. Yeah, I, 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 I do not like to think in terms of, you know, in, in terms of tax. I do consider it sometimes when I have to sell a position, but again, if I've come to the point where I need to sell a position, then I just have to sell a position, right? It does come to my mind, okay, you know, mm. I've held this position for a while. If I sell it, I have to pay tax bill for it. But, you know, as my wife would say, and wife is never wrong, if you have to pay tax, it's actually a good problem to have, you know? Amen, amen. Right? So you pay the tax and you just be happy. Paying, paying tax basically means you made money. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good win. I'm going to take a very different perspective to you, mate, only because we have run a service called Motley Fool Everlasting Income. And so the other way to do it is... I actually, I actually agree with you up to the point of retirement, right? Of needing that income. So acquiring, growing your portfolio as quickly as you reasonably and responsibly can. So we're not talking about doing silly things with your cash and being speculative and taking stupid risks. But we are both in the same camp of growing your portfolio as much as possible um, during your accumulation years. 
One other option, Doc's option is perfectly fine, by the way, and, and he'll hate me saying this, but Warren Buffett has said exactly that about Berkshire Hathaway. Leave me your money. Um, sell some stock when you need it rather than rather than expecting me to pay a dividend. So that's one version. Doc and Warren in the same camp for a change. Um, if you listen to this podcast, you know that's very unusual. The other way you can do it is to convert that portfolio to an income-producing portfolio, particularly if you're someone who doesn't want to deal with the volatility and the fluctuations of share prices and that kind of stuff. So what we do at EI uh, is we have a portfolio of stocks and we specifically target tax-effective income, not 100% franking and not you know, not all about the taxes, Doc says we don't let the, the tax tail wag the dog, as we've said many, many times. But we do take a portfolio that pays dividends and then we use the dividends plus the franking credits to fund a monthly income drawdown. So it's a really hands-off way of investing a portfolio in your retirement years, if you are worried about share price volatility or you simply don't want to have to manage a portfolio on an ongoing basis, particularly in retirement, you might be off fishing or shopping or traveling the country, doing whatever you want to do. That is another way to do it. It's probably a lower total return over the life of your retirement, particularly if you're going to retire for 30 or 40 years, right? So I think Doc's version, frankly, has probably got, if you do it well, as he says, a higher potential total return. If that's your thing, that's a perfectly great way to do it. If you want to pursue a, a strategy that lets you Draw down regular income from dividends plus those franking credits if they make sense to you, if they can help your financial situation, then that sort of building a, a portfolio, converting your portfolio into a retirement portfolio, which is income producing as its primary aim, can be a very effective way to basically, you know, people buy annuities or look at pensions. Effectively, you turn your, your portfolio into a pension paying machine. Uh, so far, we haven't had to sell a single share to pay that income to our members. We don't think we ever will have to, and the Motley Fool's put a million bucks of its own money behind this strategy. So that's that's the that's the intention. We've taken out 150 odd grand, I want to say, over over a over a year and a half, couple of years, uh, plus the franking credits, and the portfolio value is still higher than what we started with, and that was exactly our aim. So that's a very very different way to do it. Both are completely legitimate. Comes down to your individual preferences, your risk appetites, and your appetite for volatility in retirement. Any more on that, mate? No, I think that covers it. Mate, a question from John. I think you might have some thoughts on John's question. He's got two questions, actually. The first one, um, he says, I effing love the podcast. Have we done this one before? We might have. Now, this is one that is exactly the same as the question we've just asked, but takes a slightly different tack because it's about the mix. So John says, if, how does a retiree work out the balance between living off share dividend income and living off progressive sales of shareholdings? If the bias is too heavily in favor of the dividend income, the retiree could end up at death with a huge lump sum, which might have improved the quality of life while living. In other words, how do you make sure you're selling enough, but also keeping enough? So not necessarily just a matter of should it be income producing, as I said, or, or growth, as you said, but how do you think about the right proportion to sell down? How are you thinking about that 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 question of, you know, I mean, we want to live some, live some to our kids, assuming you like your kids and you've got kids. Um you want to leave something to your kids, but equally, you don't want to be living in poverty or, you know, struggling to get through on, on some meager amount. On the flip side, drawing down too much, you know, yeah, you can blow it and it might be a bit of fun, but there's a, there's a line somewhere there. How would you think about, mate, in your circumstance, the way you draw down that cash, how much or how, how do you think about how much of your portfolio to sell off? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I actually haven't put that much thought into it. Uh, one way to do that- you're only a young bloke, mate. Well, I'm not that young, but <laughs> that, that aside, I mean, you know, it's one of those questions that I guess people defer thinking about. But one way to think about it would be, like, I mean, let's say you retire at 65, mm -hmm. right? And you retire at 65, then you you know that an average 
Australian lives, let's say, up to 85. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, add a little bit of a buffer and assume that you're going to live until 90 or something <laughs> like that. Yep. Right? So that gives you from 65 to 90. Actually, that's a long, another... It really is, It's a long runway for compounding again, which yeah. is why I was saying that, you know, compounding is important because you can yeah. compound your money at that point. So, so, I mean, given that, if you can assume some decent compounding rate there, again, nothing is, is a pro- you know, mm-hmm. guarantee, but mm-hmm. you know, assuming you could compounding even... Let's say you're less aggressive now in your market, you know, in your strategy. Maybe you're only getting like you know a little bit more than the market returns, and maybe you're doing ten percent, um, still doubling every seven years, right? I right. mean, so I mean, cons- considering that, you could decide how much you'll be able to take and still have some buffer left, mm. right? I mean, that's one way to think about it. The other way to think about it could be that you know, like, how much do you really need, yeah, um, in retirement for living, right? I mean. Presumably, you've paid off your house, right? So that's that's a big cost for people. Mm-hmm. You probably have paid off for, you paid off your car, or you have a car that has been paid off. You don't need to change your car that often. Come on, dude, you're going to need a lump sum in retirement for your Tesla, surely. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, like I mean, you, you might, you know, like you might do that, right? Yeah, but the thing, is, but the thing is that, you know, and, on a regular and, yearly basis. Here, and know, I think yeah. it's an interesting question. The, the one interesting, the, the biggest expense I believe for people is in holidays, and mm-hmm. you know, expensive holidays. You know, people travel business class. They go on these all these beautiful cruises, right? So that's good. A, well, it's great, but here's the thing, right? Maybe you can only do that when you're between 65 and 75, but you're not right. able to maybe do that between 75 and 90 or 90, whatever, 95, if, you, you know, if you're lucky enough to live that long, right? right? Exactly. So uh, progressively, actually, the cost of living goes down yep. in that sense. You need to consider that. Um, so I would, you know, ideally what you want to be in a position where you're able to spend as much as you reasonably would spend. I mean, you know, we can all spend as much money we have got today and <laughs> yeah, then have nothing right. left. Yep. But um, I would say just, you know, something that enables you to maintain your quality of life, mm. even maybe slightly better quality of life. And that's what I think people should aim for. And then see, you know, you basically have to calculate. That's how I look at it. You know, it's a bridge that you're going to cross at that time. Yep. I think it's a great question. John, my thoughts to add to docs are, I mean, first thing, everyone's going to get to the point where they have that choice, right? Super hasn't been around all that long and people on low incomes or have taken uh, work break, particularly women who've been out of the workforce to look after kids, and some blokes have too, but it's generally a, a female problem. Um, that can mean there's not enough super left. So first thing if, is we want people to save as hard as they can now. So if you're not retired yet, uh, consider this a bit of a, a reminder to uh, put some extra money aside to make sure you have that problem in retirement. It is a first-class problem of, you know, how much should I take out rather than how much can I afford to take out, you know, not have too much leaving the account to fund my living expenses. So that's the first thing. Second thing, I kind of go back to the way we've built um, everlasting income, and you don't have to do it this way in terms of the way you draw down the cash, but to think about it that way is how much, as Doc's kind of alluded to, how much can you afford to bring down from your portfolio without actually harming its ability to compound? So for me, at, at Everlasting Income, we've take, we take about 4% of the portfolio value plus franking credits on the assumption that that allows the rest of it there to keep compounding. Now, if it can compound as well as taking that cash down, you kind of inflation-proof yourself, right? Because if, you, if your portfolio value grows slowly over time and you're taking the same percentage yield out of that, then your income grows over time as well. And it also means you're not taking out so much that you harm the ability to take out money later down the track. So I would say you want to be able to work out whether you can maintain and grow your income from your portfolio. And if you can, then that's a good place to be. After that, take out more if you can afford to and you want to, as long as you don't harm that compounding ability. Because lump sums are one of those things. If you start to eat into it, it gets worse over time. Once you start that that decaying process, if you like, once the rust starts, the rust's going to keep spreading. If you can keep the rust away... And we can, I won't torture the metaphor any further, but conceptually, if you can keep that away, uh, that tends to be a pretty good way to think about the, the, best, the best approach when it comes to 
taking income out, take as much out as you can afford to as long as you keep that compounding base large enough that you don't eat into that income provision. Is that fair, Doc? That is very fair. Very good. My question from Greg. Greg says, hi, Scott and Doc. Love the podcast and your insights regarding the stock market. Thanks, Greg. I have a quick question. Would there be any situation where an inverse ETF would be a good investment option? Full on, Greg. Now, mate, let's define our terms. What is an inverse ETF? It's inverse ETF is basically, I think, a bear ETF. That's my guess. And what's a bear ETF? A uh, bear ETF is basically a short bet on something. Right. So you're making money if the if the index you're tracking falls goes down. Yeah. So he's basically saying, is there any is there ever any time when we should be betting using an ETF on market falls? What say you? I do not like that idea. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us why. Well, I think the, by the problem with most of these bear ETFs is I think the way they're constructed, basically they're based on futures. Mm-hmm. And um, by definition, what happens is, you know, you, they're basically constantly selling near-term futures, right? Okay. Or they're buying near-term futures, basically. Mm-hmm. They're, you think of them as buying, no, I could explain this in terms of options, but it's basically equivalent of buying puts, mm-hmm. which basically gives you protection from a market fall. Right. But every time you're paying up for it, right, and then what happens is if nothing happens, well, to maintain that position, you have to buy another port. You have to basically roll. So you've lost some money right. there. So it's, it's constantly basically money being put as an insurance, okay. which effectively is only going to work out if there is a fall. So right? it's like saying you had 100 bucks and you kind of buy a lot of ticket every week. The longer you don't win the lottery, the less money you end up with. Yeah. And if you don't win the lottery soon enough, you're going to fritter away all your cash. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, you know, you can make the argument that you, you want to have an insurance because, you know, this is your rainy insurance. And if that's the argument you want to do, maybe that's, that's fair. Mm. I don't know. This is not what I do. Um, like, I mean, you know, if you want to have some insurance, maybe have some cash. That's another type of insurance, right? I mean, cash can be uh, insurance. Right, right. Because um, let you, well, A, it means you don't have to sell shares at, at a low point, and B, it lets you go and Buy some shares yeah. if the price is falling. Yeah, so psychologically that might be actually helpful. Yep. Um, the ability to buy. Yeah. So I, I'm not a fan of uh, of a complex. This is a really complex type of uh, instrument, mm. right? I mean, it's easy to invest in, right? Because it's, it's exchange traded. But yeah, what you're saying is the underlying is is complex. It's yeah. hard to make money from. <laughs> yeah. There are a lot. Like I mean, as you would say, right? I mean, ETFs are, are simple as an asset class. Yeah. Right. But there's a lot of complex creations around them, right? Uh-huh. Which you don't see because, you know, so yeah, it seems like, oh, this is bear ETFs. So I mean, I think the market is really high so I can, you know, buy this. But, you know, th- still you might actually, even if the market might fall 5% and you might actually not make anything off it, right? Yeah. yeah. So. Who, who would possibly want to create a product that was complex and costly? Surely. No, uh, lots of people. I mean, it's not, you know, here's the surprise. <laughs> you know, lots of people actually would want this product. Uh-huh. I don't know. But I, I, I'm, taking a, I'm taking a not so subtle dig at the product. Manufacturers, as they're called in our trade, who are happy to create something that encourages you to buy Why don't you love people money. who just want to make a living? Not off my dime. <laughs> <laughs> Knock kidding. yourself out, but don't do it on my dime. And don't on a listener's dime either, <laughs> God damn it. Leave our listeners alone. Um, Greg, uh, look, it's a great question, mate, because it is something that's around, and so it gives us a chance to talk about it. I'm with Doc. I don't think you want to do it. I've said many, many times, I, one of my, I think I made this line up, so I'm, I'm claiming it, but if anyone else has seen it somewhere else and I've in- <laughs> accidentally stolen it, let me know. Um, it is more profitable in investing to be optimistic and occasionally wrong rather than pessimistic and occasionally right. It's more profitable to be optimistic and occasionally wrong rather than pessimistic and occasionally right. The reality is that these sort of things don't pay off very often. And yeah, you might get lucky. Um, some people will, and that'll be the story they tell for the next five or 10 years. If you if you had this bear ETF for the last 10, 12 years, you would have effectively lost all your money by now, right? With all those, all those 
futures, I assume, Doc, I can't imagine any, any money left after 10 years of being wrong about a market fall. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty expensive bet. To right. Make, right? So, and, and look, event, is it going to come next week? Well, maybe, but we have, we've done this podcast now for more than two years, and we could have said at any point in the last two years, the market was up 25% last year. So not only did you lose some money buying those futures, you missed the opportunity to gain 25% on the way through. And by the way, the ETF fell because the, the value of that – the, the market also rose. So you get the inverse response, which is why it's called an inverse ETF. So look, Greg, I get it. I know it's tempting. Uh, the best the best approach to volatility is to learn to ride it rather than try and pay to avoid it. Actually, the one thing to remember here is the market rises, what, two out of three times, you know, two years out of three years on average, right? Yep. So basically you're going to be right, wrong, right, right. wrong more often than right when you buy the bear ETF. And, and it goes up more than it goes down. So even when you're right in that one year, yeah. it goes down in that one year less than it goes up yep. in the other two years. It's just... I, I, get, I get the temptation, right? Because we all want to avoid the loss. It's just too expensive to try and do it. Doc, question from Chris, mate. This is one for you. Straight up your alley. He says, hey, Scott, I'll add a, uh, from Chris, I've got a question this time for Doc. What is the real cost per annum I'd pay for BetaShares Asia Tech Tigers ETF? Another ETF. I followed your recommendation in Extreme Opportunities, so that's a recommendation of yours, Doc, and started adding more of this ETF to my portfolio to get more exposure to the overseas markets. We're both big on that. The product disclosure statement, which is the document that comes with all these things, says the management fee is estimated at 0.67% and there are more fees, e.g. recoverable expenses. What would then be the cost, the total cost per annum? Great podcast. Cheers, Chris. Chris, that's a really, really good question. One of the things with ETFs we talk about a lot is we want to get the return of the underlying uh, index they're tracking or, or investment strategy and we don't want to pay more than we have to. But like everything... Sometimes you do get what you pay for. So, you know, we'd rather pay 0.1 or 0.2 than 0.67 because they would just simply be cheaper. But without that option, we're also happy to pay up if the investment strategy itself is worth investing in even after that fee is paid. So, yeah, two two parts to this question, I think, to, for you, Doc. One is, you know, what's the total cost? And 0.67 feels like a lot, but is it worth paying? Yeah, so, I mean, it, it's on the high side, the 0.67. So to answer the other part of the question, I mean, they have certain other fees that may be charged. And I think most of those fees actually don't apply to people who are directly buying the shares of the of the market, right? right? right. There are certain recoverable fees that can be, you know, charged. Again, my expectation would be that um, they're going to be really small and yeah. therefore do not materially change this uh, 0.67, whatever it is the yeah. fees are, yeah. right? Certain dealer groups, actually, they get charged a bunch of other things. Um, and those are actually outlined in in the PDS uh, separately. You can actually see them mm. um, outlined. So I think the, the, is the fees, the fees is, is on the high side. Uh, ideally, it should be as low as possible. Right. This is sort of like an actively managed uh, ETF in that sense, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's a you know special index that's been made, and if the special index is being followed is quarterly balanced. I mean, in that sense, it's quarterly balanced like any other um, index. But yeah, so the fees is high. I mean, if if you want exposure to that particular sector of those particular countries, this is a great way to get it right here at home without mm-hmm. having to do anything, without having to lift a finger. Um, it's been market beating and I think it will be market beating is my bet over the long term. So I like it. Including the fees, right? That's the important In, Inclusive of the fees, right? right? I mean, right. the results that you see, I mean, you know, in a way, the way the way to think of it, they're basically taken out of, you know, the asset value basically is, you know, they're taking it out of the dividends and things like that, right? Right, right. So um, just on the share price itself and whatever dividends you're getting, it's still market beating yeah. by a handy margin. So it's 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 okay in that sense, you know, to pay the fee and get 
exposure. I mean, the other way to think about this is if you wanted to individually invest in these companies, you'd be paying brokerage and things like that. So, and you couldn't really do it. It's, it's in multiple countries, multiple currencies, multiple companies. Yeah. I mean, the cost would be actually significantly higher in that sense, yeah. right? I mean, you'd you'd be paying, you know, currency fees, exchange, you know, just to buy, like, just as an example, in Hong Kong, for example, would require you to buy uh, stock in round lots. Right, right, right. Right, and the fees are pretty high. Yeah, yeah. Right, so, I mean, there are still exchanges that require to buy in round lots, right? So it makes it very hard. So, so even numbers of shares. Yeah. Now, look, I think this is, I would treat fees like tax, right? So think about them like tax. The the, the approach I take, and I'm pretty sure the approach Doc takes, but he can tell me if I'm wrong, is, you know, tax is necessary, you shouldn't pay more than you have to, but you also shouldn't let the tax t- tail, again, use Doc's analogy familiar, wag the dog, right? So if I'm paying more tax, if I'm paying more fees, as long as that's worth it, i.e. as long as I get more after tax, I'm pretty happy to pay the tax. Now, I'll pay as little as I have to, but I'm not going to, A, try and pay nothing because that's counterproductive. In this case, I'll probably go to jail. Um, you know, when it comes to, to these funds, would I love to pay half that fee? Absolutely, in a heartbeat. It's not available to me, but if I can pay that fee and still beat the market then it's kind of worth doing. So I get people look at fees like they look at tax and say, how do I pay less? That's the right question. Just don't fall in the trap of trying to pay nothing or pay too little and missing out on the gains. If you look at this since inception, I just looked at the numbers on the BetaShares website. Um, since inception, this fund has returned 16.5% per annum on average. Now the index is up 17.38% and the gap between those is about 0.8-ish. Um, that, that's per annum. So that, that's kind of reflective of the fee. Again, though, would, do, you, do you want 6.5%? After fees, yeah, absolutely, I'll take that. So um, that for me is is, and again, I don't mean to be blase about it at all. Like for for a standard eight Australian or international ETF, I'll absolutely go to the lowest cost provider, right? Because if it's not, if it's simple to provide, there's Vanguard and Beta Shares and iShares and plenty of those. If I'm buying an S and P 500 ETF, I'm just going to go for the lowest fee because I don't, you know, the S and P is the S and P is the S and P is very simple. If I can choose the lower fee, I'll do it in a heartbeat as long as the provider is reputable. In this case, though, if you're paying up because you have to to get the returns you want, well, that's still a win for you. Any more on that, mate? No, that covers it. Beautiful. Thank you, Chris. Great question. Mate, next one comes from Tim. Hey, fellas, got a question for the podcast. Please don't use my name. Sorry, Tim. Um, I, I'm kidding. Tim gave us his first answer. I'm sure he's okay being called Tim. There's more than one Tim out there, and uh, I'm going to assume that's okay, Tim. So I won't mention his last name. Uh, love the show. Wanted to give specific comments. Here you go, mate. You ready? I'm ready. That's with you, Doc. I love how you form and back your own ideas. Rather than just soaking up what everyone is saying, your passion really shows through. Oh, that's a great. That's Thank you, kind, Tim. Scott, love your charismatic and warm communicating style. That's pretty nice. And like it or not, you come across as the cool uncle everyone wants to hang out with. That's pretty nice. Uh, I'm not sure. Does he... That's very nice. Uh, people want to hang out with you. You're on Instagram <laughs> and they like want to hang not. out with you. No, there is that. There is that. I'm kind of cool. You're the cool. You're the cool kid. The cool, no, the cool uncle. That's the difference. Steve. Uh, if I was the cool kid, that'd be different. <laughs> the cool kids are saying you're the cool uncle. Better than the boring. Well, uh, yeah, better than the boring uncle. All right, let's yeah. go with that. And then he says, showing that he's never seen us in person. Two good-looking roosters like yourselves should certainly be on television, not podcast. Podcast is the new medium, po- po- mate. I've got a a head for radio and a voice for print. Um, thank you very much for the compliments, Tim. Uh, by the way, if you are interested, it's a little bit of selfless, selfish plug. Um, I do a segment on Sunrise on Channel 7 most Sunday mornings. So if you do want to see my ugly mug on TV, if you want to get your weekend off to a start and you don't drink coffee, I'll scare you awake. Jump, uh, jump on to Channel 7 about 7.45 a.m. most Sundays. I do a little bit of a finance segment podcast, uh, podcast a finance segment on the TV uh, worth tuning into if you're keen. All right, that's my plug over. Anyway, here's my question. I feel this is particularly pertinent in a low interest rate environment. How do you go about valuing businesses with little or no earnings? 
which look very expensive by regular valuation metrics, e.g. Tesla. Not trying to bring it up specifically, but I guess this is the sort of company I'm talking about. Surely it doesn't matter how good their story is, eventually there's a price at which it becomes too expensive and earnings are never going to catch up. How do you go about navigating this issue? Doc, I love this question, mate, because you are a much better growth investor than I am. You have a much higher tolerance for uh, companies that aren't making money and are going to make money further down the track. And I've wondered many times, I've even asked you sometimes, maybe even on the podcast, all right, I get you think this is attractive, but surely if the price was 10, 100, 1,000 times the current price, at some point, it's too expensive. How do you work out how much is too much to pay for a company with no earnings? That's a fantastic question. You know, like, so here's the thing, right? Everybody thinks Tesla does not make money. <laughs> so, th- th- this is the brilliant part. So in fact, in fact, my, you know, in fact, oh, the dear. way actually I like investing oh, is dear. when everybody thinks Sorry, it doesn't Tim. make, Sorry, Tim. when everybody thinks it doesn't make money, you actually go and check if it makes money or not. Right. Um, and, and then you realize it actually makes money. And all these other people who are shouting about it that doesn't make money actually don't know what they're talking about. All right. Let, so, let's, I'm, I'm going to ask you to move off Tesla. I, I, I should have, so, I should have edited the question. <laughs> Tesla does make money. As you've said, mate, billion dollars of free cash for the last quarter. Do I remember Just in that? one quarter, billion dollars of free cash flow. All right. There's the Tesla plug for us this podcast episode. Uh, pick another company that's not making any money and tell us how you go about working out how much is too much to pay. So, so I think the general comment I was making is actually true. What happens is for most companies that seem to not make money, there's a reason. Right. Right. And um, so, so, you know, an illustrative example might be think of a software company, right? A software company might mm-hmm. today appear to be, oh, it's not making any money. It's a software company. It should be making money. I think Zero is making some money finally now, but it wasn't for a long time. For is a that long a decent time. Yeah, this example? is a decent example. So Zero was not making any money, right? What's so cloud going? accounting software business, lots of small business owners use it. Rather than having to download some software on your computer or keep a shoebox, everything is done online. And for a very long time, like, Five, six years? Oh, five, six years, maybe for a decade, right? Right, it, it, was, making, it was making a loss. Yeah, or making a loss on a on a statutory basis, showing up as a loss. Maybe, you know, free cash flow looks negative. It's coming back to the market to raise some money or raising some money and things like that. But, you know, the thing, there's a couple of things to think about here. One is what happens in certain industries is if you have a long like opportunity in terms of, you know, making inroads into that industry, mm. so there's a lot of greenfield opportunities then you are basically going after market share. To get go after market share, you're spending upfront. And the idea might be in some cases that you want to actually spend upfront to get the client and keep the client for a long time with you. Mm. And you're going to money, make the money over that period. So, you, you know, you maybe spend, mm. maybe you're going to make, as a virtual example, $10 of this client over 10 years. Yep. But you decide to spend $2 upfront. Right. right. So, so in the first two so years, eight, the customer's worth eight dollars to be profit wise. It, it cost me it cost me two bucks, but I make ten. So that, that's a good customer to have. A good customer to have over a period of ten years, as an example, virtual okay. example. Yep. But I'll on the that. first two years, it's going to appear as a loss, right? Because you're not going to be making. It's you have spent all the money up front. Right. So I spend two bucks in marketing in 2020. Yeah. And I convince you to come and join my to, to spend to to come and be a customer of my company. And in year one, I'm getting ten bucks a year. Let's just make it simple. Dollar a year. Let's make it simple. So ten years, ten dollars, dollar a year. So year one, maybe even year one, I spend the market you haven't joined yet, so I make I make a loss of loss of two bucks. Yeah, maybe you do join this year, but I still make a loss of a dollar because you cost me two bucks to acquire. Yeah, but I only bank dollar of revenue from you. Yeah, and then from the year three onwards, I actually have no real cost for you, right? Because I mean, it's the same software; everything is running exactly the same. You're just using it. I'm just banking your money as pure profit. But I've, you know, the acquisition cost is essential. This is a very simplified example. Yeah, no, it's a good one. You're, you're almost under. I mean, you say pure profit, which is should be putting people's ears up, but. This is the value of these sort of recurring revenue businesses, right? Like if I can acquire you in 2020 and then 2021, you're going to willingly pay me money 
and it's going to cost me literally nothing to, to get your money? Yeah. So I, I think that's a general, I mean, general framework is that a lot of companies that people think are overvalued, actually not overvalued, that, that you know, you could apply that to say something like Tesla as well. Um, and you would, you'd, you'd think that it looks expensive right now because that's because you're using this metric that is looking at today's earnings and not really looking at future earning potential. And, and I think that is where a lot of people get uh, sidetracked. I think if you try to apply the Woolies uh, or CBA mm. sort of framework to a disruptive growth business, it kind of doesn't work. Even if you apply that to sort of a mid-cap, even if you apply um, a mid-cap growth framework to mm. these companies, it also doesn't work, right? And I think, that's, I think that's, that's a stumbling block and therefore that's an opportunity for some people. That's one. The other thing I'll add is a um, lot of times what happens is the other upside potential, what you can think of it as call option or think of it as other potential things that could happen, they're not being even considered, right? So, I mean, you know, is there a valuation add on to it? Yes, there is. Maybe it's small, but there is something for all the other things that could happen or may happen or there are potential for, right? right. right? Um, and that's not being accounted for most of the time because, again, that's way into the future, but the current current um, state may mm, enable mm. the future, right? I mean, a good example would be Amazon started off as a bookstore, Right. You know, you could say, well, how big a bookstore is going to be, mm. right? But a bookstore could turn into an online retail giant, which could then turn into AWS, right? right which could then turn right, into right. a streamer and have Amazon Prime. Which multiple could, future options. Multiple future options. That doesn't happen that often. Yeah. But I think that, um, you know, those are the opportunities. The big opportunities really are when people do not see the optionality and and then do not realize that there, yeah, there's sense. actually ma- money being made in the in an underlying sense. Very nice. I completely agree. Uh, I still am not entirely sure it's hap- it's possible. Just to, to answer the question directly from my perspective, you kind of can't know, right? You've got to be sort of roughly right rather than precisely wrong, because there's no way to know exactly the right price or exactly what's too much to pay. There's is probably more art than science. I think, mate. Would you Would you agree? Yeah, it's a, a little bit. Uh, I think it's a little bit of art. And so I think you know, frankly, I think it involves more closing your ears and this, you know. And listening to the obvious and the usual. I think what has ha- what happens in, in the finance world a lot is people listen to the usual mm. and you're used to thinking about the usual. And anything outside the usual then appears unusual. Yeah, right. Right? But that's what the opportunities are. The unusual yeah. actually gives you the opportunity. So I think, you know... Uh, you know I mean, you th- never ever would have bought Amazon between three and 2,000 bucks if you're waiting for profits, right? Yeah, you would ne- never buy it, right? And if you applied a moat principle on it or if you thought it's going to be a moaty company, you land up buying Coca-Cola, right? You're not going to be buying Amazon if... Uh, you know, if you're looking for a multi, uh, you know, slow-growing company mm-hmm. uh, and things like that. So I think it's the framework and you really need to have a different framework to look at. I think the same thing, the other thing I'll say is that you have to be willing to be wrong, mm. right? And you have to, you know, in a way you're swinging many times and you're just, you know, and sometimes you're going to be wrong and you just have to accept it. Yeah, for sure. And, and if you, Makes sense. Yeah. Mate, last question. As I said, a bit, of a bit of behind the curtain. We are being kicked out of the studio because apparently... Big Mark Guy wants the studio, and Mark Guy, if he wants to, he gets the studio, which I think is, look, you know, I, I could pretend to be insulted, but frankly, uh, he gets the studio. He's much bigger than me, and he's played state of origin football and uh, and Australian uh, representative football for the NRL. So I'm not going to argue with Mark Guy. We're just going to get out of here after this one, mate. We are we have a celebrity correspondent now. Early February, I I told the story in a Money Hacks episode about David Geck. Now he'd written to David Gardner's podcast. Our 
Motley Fool co-founder and rule breaker investor, uh, to talk about the story of him being able to save 40% of his income by a little hack of simply saving half of every raise he got. Now, hopefully, if you have a chance, you can go back and listen to that particular money hack. Unknown to me, David Geck listens to our podcast too. So I feel both, uh, I didn't ask his permission in advance because the story had been already shared publicly, so I figured I could rip it off. So Dave, my apologies for not reaching out to you and asking your personal uh, okay first, but he actually emailed us. He said, guys, a few questions and comments. But first, let me tell you how thrilled I was to listen to your early February Money Hacks edition and hear my name and story building up to saving 40% plus of my salary. To now know that I am known in Australia and Hungary is very exciting. Thanks for making my day. Dave, you're very welcome, and thanks for letting us share your story. Um, the, the hungry reference, by the way, is that uh, we were told at one point we were the number three finance podcast in Hungary, which is kind of cool. So Hungary, Australia, and Dave Geck. That's a, that's a good trio. I also want to thank you for answering my question as to what do you drive. If I recall correctly, Doc drives a Model 3, which also begs the question, is the Model S not available in Australia? Doc, is the model is the model S available? <laughs> yeah, you know, the model S is available. You know, there's a little story. So I was we were actually, you know, we were waiting for the model three because it's the new car. Yep. And it was taking too long because the right hand side drive was not coming. So I actually oh. almost bought a model S until we figured that we couldn't put two cars in our garage. Model S is just too big. So <laughs> the go. car was almost purchased and then not purchased. Just where you did the measurements. Well, I could have been ugly. <laughs> I didn't do it. My wife said, oh. well, you know, we can get that car, but have you measured the garage? I said, oh, that's a good idea. Our wives are much smarter than us, but, mate, can yeah, I say? I just listened to her. <laughs> that's my motto in life. Is I just listened to her. I said, oh, that's a good question. I did not think about that, but let me go and do that. <laughs> so, there yeah, that's Dave. my model S story. That's why. He says, I agree with Doc on people hearing what international companies pay employees in other countries and are horrified by the injustice of taking advantage of these people. This is a question we had about the, the value or otherwise of capitalism. But the wages paid are usually better than going the going national rate. In other words, he's saying the international, so the, the apples of the world who are using Chinese employees, are, they're probably getting paid more than the average Chinese wage. I ran several manufacturing plants in Mexico for a large US company with operations around the globe. Yes, by American standards, they were paid a pittance, but it was more than they could get elsewhere from national or local companies. If we had paid twice as much, it would have caused a great disturbance. When I first worked in Mexico on the border in the 80s, every salary position was, heard, was held by an American. Over the years, these jobs were replaced by Mexican nationals. By the time I retired in 2014, my peers that were Mexican nationals were paid more than I was, and the US salaried workforce was less than 5%. It's on a related thought, related because I believe it was in the same podcast, one gentleman was bad-mouthing stock investing because capitalism was wicked. Capitalism is not the problem, people are. Communism and socialism sound good, but in many cases of them in practice have been imposed by a despotic leader. Adam Smith is often considered to promote capitalism as a no-control system in the wealth of nations. He may be the father of capitalism, but as a moral philosopher and author of the theory of moral sentiments, I think he would agree with me only, impl- uh, only about implementation. I would suggest he might want to listen to a David Gardner podcast on conscious capitalism. Uh, sorry, I've not given you any stars yet. I'm not sure how to get... Uh, I'm not sure how... I'm sorry. I'm sure to how you get your podcasts, but I've not seen an opportunity to award them. David, you can have to look harder. On another question, I know Doc is Doc due to his education, and he is his computer science PhD, but how did you get the captain reference? I'm not even sure I remember that one, do you? Oh, do you, you know, but you have to discuss the story. I don't know. I don't even, I don't think, no, someone started calling me captain once. 
Well, yeah, I, think I, you know, I think it's just, you know, the, the, the title Phillips sounds like, you know, you could be a pirate captain. <laughs> so that's what I Possibly. thought. Possibly. The, um, we use Slack at work and the, the emoji that's now associated with me often is the Captain Jean-Luc Picard from Star Trek who shares my lack of hair. So uh, that wasn't the reason, but it's certainly been the, uh, the consequence. All right. He says, last question. When you refer to the price of Doc's newsletter... I presume the price in Australian dollars. Yes, it is. But can one get a subscription in the US? Now, yes, you can. Uh, we are not uh, – so we have, to, we have to follow the Australian financial services legislation and licensing regime. We don't have a marketing operation in the US. We don't sell directly into the US. Uh, we are operating under our Australian financial services license regime. Uh, so we do that. We advertise to Australians. If others want to buy their newsletter, that's completely up to them. We can't market to you. We can't say you should. If you choose to, that's up to you. Uh, the, product, the the recommendations are all ASX stocks on Doc's scorecard. They are wonderful companies, uh, but you'll have to make your own decision on that one, Dave. Uh, he says, I said a letter to David Gardner complaining I never hear him or anyone else mention your great podcast. I think you should do more of that, Dave. I'm, I'm very, you're very quickly becoming one of our favorite listeners. Uh, he said, I remember I found it after the Singapore podcast closed up. I'm making my way back through your old podcast, made it only to August 2019 so far but I'm getting used to your voices enough that I've bumped it up to one and a half times speed. Stay foolish, Dave Geck. Dave, thank you for that uh, very kind correspondence. I speak fast enough that one and a half might be a little bit too much, but if you can do it, good luck to you. I'm glad you can. Doc, that was a great letter from Dave, and if you haven't had a chance, listeners, please do go back and listen to how Dave saved 40% of his salary because, frankly, there's only so much we can do here to help you build your wealth. The best thing you can do is actually more than we can do for you, which is, Save more of your income because A, that's risk-free return. And B, if you can double your savings, you'll double your total returns and that's worth doing. Any thoughts on that, Doc? No, I think it's a beautiful letter and thank you, David. Uh, loved it. Mate. Great. That's all we've got time for. Yep. MG is knocking on the door and MG gets what MG wants and we love him, so we're happy to hand over to him. That does wrap us up. But before we go, don't forget, if you haven't already, and of course you have, but if you haven't already, please do subscribe to the Triple A Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes if you must or your favorite Android podcast app if you're more thoughtful and considerate. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Tell your friends, leave us a comment, throw us a review, give us some stars. More of the world can do with a little bit more foolishness, I'm sure you'll agree. Don't forget, of course, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox. By going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.